uh, going into Daniel. Um, Daniel is the second prophet of two that experiences the exile. So last week, Pastor David uh, walked us through Ezekiel, who is uh, the other prophet experiencing exile. We, we walked through the prophets who anticipated the exile. Ezekiel and Daniel prophesy their ministry happens during the exile, while the Israelites, um, the Hebrews, are taken out of the land, and then we'll move on to the prophets who are prophesying after that, after the return. Um, but So after Babylon conquers Judah, they gathered up a lot of the young men, like um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they take them to the royal court of Babylon. Daniel is one of those young men who's taken to serve in the royal court of Babylon, um, one of only, I think, five major characters who serve in a foreign royal court. And so Ezekiel gives us a priestly perspective, Palmer Robertson says. He he's emphasizes the tabernacle. He emphasizes to the, um, the Hebrews that just because you're out of the land doesn't mean God's presence uh, can't be near you. He sees the, the temple, a vision of the temple that is moving. So he's able to see that um, they're not cut off from God just because they're, they're taken out of the land. So Daniel's perspective, instead of the priestly perspective there, Daniel is shown what does that mean for the rest of the nations. Ezekiel's emphasis is this word to uh, the Hebrews. Daniel is shown, hey, it's not just to the Hebrews. We're also the entire world is being affected by God here. So uh, the main theme is the universal domain of the kingdom of God. Um, in other words, it's, it's not just, God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God over all things and all people. So Ezekiel and Daniel are unique in one of the uh, word pictures they, they paint and using this imagery of trees, nations as trees. Ezekiel paints um, or presents Assyria as this large spreading tree, and Daniel picks up on that, and he presents Babylon the same way, this large spreading tree with branches spread out. He says that the beasts of the field will use the branches for shade, and birds of the air will use them for rest. Um, but Daniel is... Uh, told that Nebuchadnezzar is the, is the tree, and he's also shown that the tree must be cut down, a symbol that the glory that Nebuchadnezzar claims for himself, that Babylon claims, is actually uh, belongs to God. So he has to be humbled because he doesn't recognize uh, God over himself. He claims all the glory for himself instead of pointing it um, back, to, back to the Lord. This quote here, uh, the vast domain of this earthly monarch can only function subordinately under the universal domain or dominion of the God of Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar is only able to rule, and he's an instrument of God in coming in and disciplining the chosen people. It's not that he is um, above the God of Israel, but that he has been chosen as an instrument um, by the God of Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn that lesson. So uh, OPR, his takeaway here is that the earthly trees or these empires, 
may triumph over God's people for a moment, but ultimately they too will bow down to the king of kings. These uh, earthly empires, these kingdoms, they look victorious in the moment, but it's only by God's will that they're given this victory, uh, this, this triumph over God's chosen people. It's all according to God's plan and under his control. Like I said earlier, Ezekiel and Daniel are the only Old Testament prophets to use the tree imagery this way about the nations. Um, It's not really a discussion question, unless anybody has some uh, profound insight into it, but some food for thought is who in the New Testament uses tree imagery this same way, this large spreading tree? I think Travis knows. (laughs) Sunday school answer, yes. Jesus. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Mark four thirty through thirty two. He says, "With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade." Um, just food for thought. I I didn't have a lot of time this week to really meditate on that connection and what that might mean, but uh, Palmer Robertson does uh, go out of his way to to mention that. Yes, sir. I don't know anything about mustard trees. Yeah. It's when what uh, comes to my mind are either like the trees we go downtown and they have those, you can see those massive trees with huge branches spreading out and the, the moss coming down out of it, or the um, like the tree of life and like Lion King. <laughs> so, um, all right. Five critical points and some of those have, have subpoints there, but the five main points of Daniel's visions here are the Colossus of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the stone cut without hands, the four beasts, the little horn, and the son of man. They all uh, are counted all as one. The 77s and the stern-faced king who magnifies himself above every god. So, uh, First, Daniel sees a vision of a uh, Colossus, uh, this this giant and it's an enormous statue of a man the head is made of gold the chest and arms are made of silver belly and thighs of bronze and the legs of iron with part iron and part clay Daniel is told that these visions reveal future events so he's he's foretelling things that will happen and Daniel specifically identifies the head as Babylon. So the interpretation then is uh, because the body parts are changing material, they represent different uh, empires. So it starts with, with the head is Babylon, moves on to that uh, chest and arms of silver, uh, which are, is the Medo-Persian Empire, which comes in after Babylon. Then the belly and thighs of bronze are the Greeks, the Greek Empire comes in after, and then the legs of iron are uh, 
finally the Roman Empire. And he points out, and we'll cover this with the stone made out of hands, that all of these kingdoms are replaced by the kingdom of God. These are all temporal kingdoms. They have a, a beginning, they have an end. And they'll all be replaced by the kingdom of God that will know no end. Next, Daniel is shown a vision of the stone made without hands. And this is a stone, a giant stone that comes and smashes the feet of the Colossus and then grows into a huge mountain that fills the whole earth. And Palmer Robertson says that this stone represents God's righteous judgment of the nations. It's coming in, smashing the feet, um, and replacing them. And this is, the, this is God's righteous judgment of these nations that even though they were um, instruments of his, of his disciplining, Israel, and he decreed their victories, uh, they are still responsible uh, to God, and they'll be judged by, uh, by him. So, uh, look at that point there. Much like the Holy Spirit, O. Palmer Robertson says we shouldn't think of the stone as an inanimate object or impersonal force, but as a person, a sovereign that embodies the kingdom of God in himself and supersedes all their all other earthly monarchs. This is not just uh, this impersonal judgment of God. He just there is a standard, and and uh, the nations are judged by it. But this is an actual. The stone represents a person that is bringing the judgment of God, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. First uh, Peter two eight. Um, I, I didn't write down the scripture that it quotes, but it, it's quoting an Old Testament scripture describing Christ as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And Luke twenty eighteen says, uh, Jesus says that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him, referring to himself. Uh, so, discussion question here. Uh, how does Jesus as this stone of judgment compared to how he's usually portrayed, how might that affect our evangelism or our discipleship?
Yeah. So going beyond that, um, that felt need, Jesus, which he does. I mean, he tells us to bring his, bring our, our burdens to him. And he, uh, you know, he tells us that um, the, the sparrows won't fall to the ground. A hair won't fall, fall from our head without the Lord. So um, he does meet our felt needs, but going beyond that. Six, six pounds, sweet ounce. <laughs> Yeah, people like to uh, set Paul and Jesus against each other and say, you know, reject Paul's teaching. And it's not Jesus. It's not red letter. But they forget that Jesus is the great uh, fire and brimstone preacher of the New Testament. Um, Yes, sir. Yeah, and I think that a lot of times we don't want to um, offend. And, of course, there is a 
bad way in which we can be offensive. I mean, we can, we can be, you could just be a jerk. Um, and you're offending people because you're a jerk, not necessarily because you are um, preaching an offensive Christ or gospel, because it is offensive to sinners. I mean, it's offensive to us before, um, before the Lord changes our hearts. And, and it can still be offensive to us when we're uh, convicted of sin. But I think, at least for me, it's, it's a challenge to remember that just because somebody is offended by the gospel, by the message, doesn't mean uh, you're not preaching a true gospel. Um, because, I mean, First Peter, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And uh, our evangelism, or my evangelism, is often, you know, I, aren't you lonely? Aren't you sad? Aren't you any of these things? Well, Jesus is the cure for that. Um, where if you look at Peter's um, sermon at Pentecost, he opens up with, you killed Jesus, and you're guilty for it, and you need, and, and then he goes into this gospel hope. Um, so that's, I thought that was, that was an important takeaway to remember that about, about the hope that we have, that it's kind of that uh, truism, you need to the, the, hear the bad news before you're ready for the good news. Um, all right, thank you. Good. So next, Dan, uh, Daniel is shown a vision of four beasts, and then a little horn, and then the Son of Man. So he sees these four beasts, and I didn't put the descriptions in um, just because you can go to Daniel and read the descriptions, or if you have the book, you can, you can see them in there. But um, he, oh, oh, Palmer Robertson takes the descriptions and shows how they apply to the same empires. So again, you have, he sees Babylon first, and then they're replaced by the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks, and then finally the Romans. Um, and so he says that they are shown as these beasts, that they threaten the life of the people of God. So the, the people of God are suffering under um, the rule of these empires. And then the fourth beast, Rome, is depicted as having ten horns at first, and then those ten horns are all replaced by one little horn. And Palmer Robertson says that that little horn represents um, a Roman empire, a Roman emperor, and one who would just be the, essentially the, the worst of the worst. You have these, these ten horns that seem to all represent uh, uh, terrible um, Roman rulers, and then you have the little horn that comes and is, is worse than all of the rest. Um, and he is, uh, he says, is the epitome of human authority in opposition to the kingdom of man, the kingdom of God, sorry. Um, that guy who says, I rule this world. That idea that you know, I, I defy God and I am I'm in control. And uh, Next, Daniel is shown this vision of the son of man. Uh, he describes his vision as one like the son of man who comes with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days and this is a sidebar, this is free, but um, the, I italicized too because um, for a really long time, um, kind of that default eschatology that I had grown up in, just kind of default evangelical Baptist circles is, oh, this is the, this is the end times, this is Jesus coming back to earth. And um, then it was, I was pointed out to me that that can't be the case in this vision because he's going to the Ancient of Days. <laughs> he's not coming from the Ancient of Days on the clouds. 
Um, so this is, he's, uh, Palmer Robertson says this is representing uh, future events, but it's, it's not representing the, the eschaton. It's not the end of times, Jesus returning. It's, this is a vision of the Son of Man going, ascending to the Father, to the Ancient of Days. So uh, he says that the figure is a man. He's not another beast, so he bears the image of God. Um, that coming with the clouds, he says, is a symbol of um, divine origin. And he says that he receives from the Ancient of Days a kingdom that is both universal and eternal. So this is he's receiving that authority from, from the Father um, over all things for all eternity. Interestingly, Daniel never refers, he never makes a connection between um, the Son of Man and the Son of David. He only, he just talks about the Son of Man, he doesn't, he doesn't make that connection. But Jesus, I'm sure lots of us know, his favorite term for himself is the Son of Man. He constantly um, refers to himself as the Son of Man in the Gospels. And um, Palmer Robertson points out that he, he, I think he says there might have been one instance where he refers to himself as Messiah or says somebody calls him Messiah and he says he doesn't deny it. Um, but he points out that Messiah for uh, first century Jews was loaded with all of these, uh, these preconceived ideas and that son of man was more or less left alone. So everyone had these ideas of what the Messiah would look like, but they, didn't, they hadn't really developed what they thought the son of man would look like. Um, so he says maybe this is why Jesus likes to refer to himself as the son of man because he's not he's not going to play into these ideas of what everyone thinks he should he should be like then um, next daniel sees a vision of 77s which are are 70 weeks and the main point of of that part of the vision is that a definite time has been decreed by god for the accomplishment of all that which is necessary for the true restoration of god's people from bondage and Essentially what he's saying is there's been a definite time that God has chosen for the accomplishment of his plans. It's not random. Um, it's not flying by the seat of his pants. He's not, he's not working with um, what he's been given. The Lord has, has definitely appointed before time uh, what his plan is and, and the times that those events will occur uh, so the, the context surrounding those 70 weeks is uh, Daniel's, again, Daniel's told that he's shown this vision of 70 weeks. Uh, they represent the time from the rule of Medo-Persia after Babylon um, up until the arrival of the Messiah. So, um, and he, he also points out that uh, this actually, he relates it to the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah um, is told about uh, because of their not keeping the Sabbath, that the land needs to rest for, um, is it 490 weeks, Travis? I think sounds right. Yeah. So he makes that, it's not a, it's not a direct connection, um, but he, he ties those two concepts together. Um, so are the 70 weeks figurative or actual? Well, obviously they can't be literal weeks because that's barely over a year. Um, but they do represent literal time. So he, he takes those weeks and he takes them as representing amounts of years. So uh, in his vision, those 70 weeks are split into uh, groups, into three groups. So he's first shown uh, seven weeks together 
and then another 62 weeks, and then one final week after that. So the first vision that he sees, the seven weeks, he says set, is set from the return um, to Jerusalem for Ezra and Nehemiah until the end of Old Testament revelation. And so then the 62 weeks go from that end of Old Testament revelation right there, and they go all the way up until um, about AD 30, which would be the, the ministry of Jesus Christ. Um, and then he, he takes the, the last week, and the last week he actually has shown a split. It's, it's in half, so he's shown a vision of the first half of that last week, and then the second half of that last week. And he takes that as um, Christ's um, crucifixion and then his resurrection and ascension. So the accomplishment of redemption within the 77s. Um, Palmer Robertson says that the, the 70 weeks are a time for finishing transgression, putting an end to sin, and atoning for iniquity. Those are all things that are, deal with sin, and they're all addressed on the cross. And then there's also a time for eternal righteousness to be brought in, vision and prophecy to be sealed up, and the most holy one to be anointed, which all are accomplished by Christ's ascension and exaltation. So it's that, those two halves of the final week uh, that represent Christ's ministry. Um, the final part of Daniel's vision is uh, a stern-faced king who magnifies himself above every god. Um, so Palmer Robertson he takes this uh, these revelations to Daniel and he relates them to God's revelation to Abraham um, when God tells Abraham that his descendants would sojourn in Egypt um, he says that at that point God comes and reveals himself to Abraham and he gives them he gives him an idea of what's going to happen for the next 400 years um, for his chosen people. And he says that he does the same thing here. So he gives Abraham this, this idea of, uh, of what's going to happen in this major uh, time period of his working with his chosen people. And now he's doing the same as it, as it nears the end of his Old Testament revelation. He get, comes and tells them about a 400-year period. Here's these broad strokes of history of what's going to happen. Um, so I pulled a quote here. At the time of the formalizing of the Abrahamic covenant, God informed the patriarch of the course of history as it would affect his people for the next 400 years. So now as the people of God are about to enter another period of 400 years in which they would be subjected to the kings and kingdoms of this world, it might have been expected that the Lord would make known in broad outline the plan and purpose he had come for the coming epochs, just as he had done previously. So I think his point is this is not just a, a new idea um, that God had to have this kind of revelation to his people, but that he was um, operating in a similar way that he had already dealt with his people in the past. So who is the stern-faced king who magnifies himself above every god? Uh, Palmer Robertson identifies him as a man named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Um, he's a Greek king, and if you know the story of the, the Maccabean rev uh, revolt and um, Hanukkah, uh, he was the, the Greek king during that time, and he um, 
named himself um, Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. He named himself Epiphanes, and it was uh, his way of saying, I am God revealed. I'm God incarnate. I'm here. I, I, am, I am God. Uh, so that's his setting, that's part of his setting himself above every king. Um, but then he also uh, tried to make Israel and the holy, the promised land um, Greek. He tried to take Greek customs and, and bring them in and import it there. And he went, I believe it was Egypt. He goes to Egypt and he faces off against the Romans there. And <laughs> he told them to uh, uh, surrender. They told him to surrender. And he said he needed time to think about it. And one of the Roman generals came over and drew a circle in the sand around him and told him, you have until you step out of that circle to think about it. <laughs> and uh, Palmer Robertson said that he was so furious over that that he, uh, he left and returned to Jerusalem. And this is the, um, the abomination of desolation. This, he returns to Jerusalem and he's so furious that he, uh, he destroys the, the um, parts of Jerusalem and he sacrifices pigs. Um, to the Greek gods in the temple. Um, so it's this, this desecration of, of God's temple, of um, his promised land and his holy city. And this is him setting himself uh, against not only all of these pagan gods, declaring himself God, but then he sets himself against um, the God of Israel as well. Obviously, it didn't work out that well for him because by the time we get to the Gospels, the Romans aren't charged not the Greeks. Um, so, uh, finally, the theological significance of Israel's exile. So, there's three main groups of people that Daniel is essentially addressing um, in exile and what it means for them. He addresses the apostate among Israel, um, and those are those who confess God with their mouth, but they live out disbelief uh, in their lives. And Palmer Robertson says that they do this by, by worshiping other gods or by trying to um, integrate pagan religions into their worship of the true God. And uh, for these people, um, the curse for covenant breaking is revealed in the exile. They're banished from God's presence. Not only, are they, not only do they see um, the glory of the Lord leave the temple, but then they're, they're even taken out of the land. Um, for compromising disobedient believers, uh, those who, who do worship Yahweh, they don't worship other gods, but they're, uh, they're walking in disobedience, they're, they're not obeying the laws that God gave, uh, he, they, they're shown that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. Um, they, they won't be able to continue to just sin as they please, but the Lord will chastise them. He'll discipline them to, to teach them to obey. And for those faithful in the land, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, the, the remnant that the Lord preserves, those who um, are worshiping the true God and doing it truly, um, they are exiled from the promised land into foreign nations. Um, but instead of being a sign of their banishment from God's presence, or an example of they're personally being disciplined. Um, this is showing that God's presence goes with them wherever they go. And also that God's presence is, God is not just God 
for Israel or for uh, the promised land, but he's God for all people and everywhere. Yeah. So I think as we um, continue on and as we worship God ourselves, we need to be especially thankful um, for the book of Daniel. It's not something I'd ever thought of, but thankful for the book of Ezekiel and the book of Daniel because it shows that we don't have to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God. Uh, we, we don't have to be uh, ethnic Jews to worship God. God is the God of all places and all people. So he's brought us in as, uh, as the Gentiles, and we're able to worship him in spirit and truth um, wherever we are. With that, we've, we've got just a few more minutes, so any questions, comments, or heartfelt concerns, open up the floor. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I thought about that as I was going through, and, and I was a little like, man, he doesn't talk about any of the story, really. Um, but I guess he's going through, he's talking about prophecy. Um, he wants to emphasize the, the visions that he's seen. Disappointing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, thank you for, for bearing through my lecture this week. <laughs> These chapters are a little difficult. Um, they just, they're so specific and they're so content heavy that um, they're a little hard to, to go through discussion wise and, and just trying to convey all the information that he's given us. But, yes, That's a great point, and it's it's interesting to try to to try to read it from the perspective of um, of the first audience that doesn't have all that information. That doesn't. I mean, we um, like for instance, we we know historically Babylon's uh, followed by the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans, but 
you know, these people, they're just living under Babylon. And for them, it probably is, is inconceivable that, that anybody could be stronger than Babylon. Um, and then, so there, it's not even probably a, a possibility in their minds that Babylon could be replaced by someone else. So that's not an interpretation that they're going to think of, I would imagine. I mean, it, if it's not one I think I would think of. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll pray for us, and then we'll prepare to worship God. Father, we thank you again for your word to Daniel. Thank you for preserving it for us. We thank you that you uh, made a way for us to come and be your people. We ask that you would uh, teach us your word and that we would be able to humbly worship you, that we would uh, exalt you and glorify you, that we would glorify you in, in the rest of our lives and uh, the rest of this week. I ask that you would prepare our hearts to come before you, uh, that we would be ready to receive your word and that we would um, sing praises to you and, and come before you in prayer reverently and that you would accept our worship and that you would come and be with us this morning in your son's holy name amen